Okay, hello everybody and welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us for this webinar entitled Borderless COVID Restricted Vaccines. Uh, this webinar is organized by Global Access in Action, a project of the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University. Uh, Gaia, as some of you may know, focuses on promoting access to medicines for vulnerable populations through policy and regulations. Uh, my name is Ash. I'm an affiliate of Gaia and Berkman Klein Center. Uh, before introducing our speakers, I want to remind you that you should be uh, happy and free to uh, use the chat box to interact with other participants, but also most importantly, to drop your questions in the Q&A uh, box and to vote for the question which you wish the speakers to answer first. Uh, so I now have the pleasure to introduce our two uh, speakers for today. Uh, Quentin Palfrey is the co-founder of Global Access in Action. Quentin currently serves as president of International Digital Accountability Council, an independent watchdog created to provide to improve digital accountability through international monitoring, investigation, education, and collaboration with online applications and platforms. During the Obama administration, Quentin was the senior advisor for jobs and competitiveness in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and deputy general counsel for strategic initiatives at the US Department of Commerce. In these positions, Quentin played a leading role in efforts to develop baseline consumer privacy legislation centered on the idea of a consumer privacy bill of rights. He also served as the lead White House staffer in connection with passage of the America Invents Act, the launch of the Patent for Humanity Initiative, and the relaunch of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Prior to his time in the Obama administration, Quentin served as the first chief of the healthcare division in the Massachusetts Attorney General's office, where he oversaw multi-million dollar litigation and investigations against insurance and pharmaceutical companies and played a key role in decisions relating to the implementation of the Massachusetts landmark healthcare reform law. Quentin also served on several nonprofit organizations, uh, including JPAL North America, where he worked to improve the efficacy of social services in the areas of healthcare, economic mobility, housing and education, and the voter protection core. Uh, Quentin was most recently, the 2018 Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. Uh, Quentin is a graduate of the Harvard University and Harvard Law School. Uh, so thank you for joining us, Quentin. Uh, our second speaker will be John Stubbs. So John is familiar to many of us who are connected to the Berkman Klein Center. Uh, he's a Washington DC based affiliate of the BKC where he works to connect scholars and experts to policymakers in the Washington DC uh, area on issues related to international trade, in addition to supporting Gaia, uh, Gaia's work on innovative medical technology. Uh, John is also the managing partner of Romulus, a Washington DC based consulting firm that helps executives and corporate boards develop and manage a proactive, productive global public policy agenda. From 2001 to 2007, John worked for the W. Bush administration, uh, including a senior, a senior advisor to the US State Trade Representative. He is currently board member of the National Foreign Trade Council Foundation, 
board member of the National Association of the Urban Debate Leagues and a founding member of the Crew du Carnaval, supporting the work of Canpe in Haiti and the Preservation Hall Foundation in New Orleans. So thank you both for, for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, have you both on this panel. Uh, so Quentin, as of date, uh, the COVID-19 has infected more than 3 million people and killed at least 210,000 worldwide. Uh, the US alone has more than a million cases and several European countries remain hotspots. On other continents, public health experts continue to be concerned about the increasing trends in all regions as cases of death might be underreported. Uh, so there is definitely an international community pledge to coordinate for global trial on the safety and efficacy of therapeutics against uh, for COVID-19. Uh, and where I come from, so I come from Africa, as, uh, as you know, uh, the CDC Africa and the African Union have also stepped up to call for coordination of responses, but also to rethink how procurement and supply chain would look like facing uh, to address the COVID-19. Uh, and while Africa uh, faces a lot of health challenges, including inadequate supplies of medicines, uh, that's now being made worse by international hoarding and overpricing, uh, lack of health professional, inadequate infrastructure. Uh, everybody is converging towards the fact that vaccine efforts should be guided by three imperatives, speed, manufacturing deployment, and global access. But while this global race for COVID-19 vaccine intensifies, there's a question that keeps popping into many of our minds. When a successful vaccine emerges, will the market power be allowed to dictate access and will most vulnerable nations be able to afford it? Thank you so much for your kind introduction, Ash, um, and hello to all of you. I see in the attendee list a lot of familiar faces and some, some good friends of our program over the years, um, and I hope everyone is doing well and is safe in these really extraordinary and troubling times. I'm gonna share my screen um, and um, share some slides that we've prepared. Um, and the key question um, that I think that we're, we're struggling with um, is um, as, as the COVID-19 uh, epidemic, pandemic has overwhelmed some of the uh, most advanced health systems in the world, um, the, the pandemic has been slow to arrive in Africa. Um, but if the health systems of some of the most advanced countries in the world um, have not been able to cope with this, when it does explode in some of the poorest parts of the world, um, there's significant potential for great misfortune. And unfortunately, we're starting to see an uptick in, um, in cases in Africa. Just in the last week, there's been a 43% increase. And the fundamental question that I think that we need to ask ourselves is as the um, world community scrambles to develop not just vaccines, but also diagnostics and treatments, how do we make sure that everyone around the world has access to these medicines um, no matter where they live? So let me sort of start with the baseline uh, in terms of 
global access to medicines um, and, and uh, therapeutics, diagnostics, and vaccines. Um, and there are shameful disparities. So a child born in Cambodia, 18 times more likely to die by the age of five than a child born in Iceland. There are 22 million of the uh, 37 million people living with HIV globally didn't have access to treatments. Um, and many drugs are not available at any price um, in some of the poorest parts of the world. That's the bad news. The good news is that as a result of a global social contract, um, beginning um, with the Millennium Development Goals in September of 2000, um, we've made extraordinary progress um, as a world community in addressing some of the, um, the health uh, the health disparities and the, um, the health conditions that are facing the global world. So the rate of deaths of children under the age of five have fallen uh, by half uh, between 1990 and 2013. Um, new HIV AIDS infections have declined um, by 38% between 2001 and 2013. Um, so working together as a community has been a very successful uh, strategy for alleviating some of these problems. Um, Unfortunately, this global social contract has begun to unravel in recent years. Um, there's a rise of uh, populist nationalism, development assistance by members of the OECD, some of the world's richest countries have fallen. Uh, we've seen increasing trade tensions around the world, and we've seen uh, decreasing foreign direct investment for a number of years in a row. Um, so as we sort of come together as a world community, um, we see some of the uh, most important players in the world community um, trying to tackle the challenges of COVID-19 um, as they're emerging um, at a breakneck pace. Um, last week, we saw the World Health Organization, the European Commission, some of the leading philanthropic voices from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and CEPI and Gavi and Welcome Trust and Unicaid and the Red Cross coming together to make a global commitment um, to try to take on some of these challenges. Um, but we also hear voices, um, some of them in the United States and some around the world, that suggest that it is um, more important for uh, countries to deal with their own challenges. And at the bottom of that is sort of this notion um, that maybe um, we should have drugs and vaccines cost the same uh, all across the country. So President Trump is one of the main voices for this sort of America first or populist nationalist approach. Um, and in last year's um, State of the Union, he said it's unacceptable um, for Americans to pay vastly more than people in other countries for the same drugs um, if they're made in the same um, and I think that one of the things that this brings up, and we've seen these voices uh, not just on the right, um, but also on the left. Um, and I think that one of the things that we've been um, trying to articulate is the importance of the global social contract as a mechanism um, for ensuring uh, access to medicines across the world. Um, and one of the ways to think about um, what's wrong with this notion um, of America first um, is to think about um, progressive pricing of pharmaceuticals as something that's analogous uh, to progressive pricing in taxation. So in nearly every country in the world, including the United States, um, we tax our residents on a sliding scale. So if you make more money, um, you 
pay not only more taxes, but you pay a higher rate of taxes as your income increases. And insisting that fairness demands um, that Mozambique or poorer countries pay the same prices um, for vaccines as treatments as, say, an OECD country would mean more hardship. It would also um, decrease the amount of innovation. And what we've seen is over the, um, the last few decades, the use of progressive pricing as a mechanism for increasing access to medicines has had an extraordinary impact um, on the availability of medicines. So if you take the example of HIV AIDS, um, those medicines um, tend to cost between thirty-five and $40,000 a year per patient um, in the United States, but only $75,000 in, Af in Africa. Um, and this has caused um, an extraordinary increase of this uh, progressive pricing approach has caused an extraordinary increase in the access of medicine um, to some of the world's poorest countries. Um, and this notion of global solidarity um, is embedded in some of the international um, norms that underlie um, some of these international efforts. Um, so the Global Access and Action Project um, at, Harvard, uh, at Harvard under the Perkin Klein Center has looked at um, a number of strategies for increasing access to medicines. Um, and some of what we do is direct country advising to, um, to African country governments to work with their legal systems um, to enable some strategies for increasing access to medicines. And some of it is um, to look at some of the mechanisms for making price, uh, uh, making drugs um, available in a way that allows um, for incentives um, to, uh, to develop the next wave of medicines. Um, so um, access to medicines, availability of affordable medicines is not just a question of the world's poorest countries. We have lots of access challenges within the same jurisdictions. Um, and so as you're developing uh, strategies for increasing access to medicine, you also need to look um, at how you can charge different prices in the same countries. Um, and uh, you also have to think about some ways um, that we can um, have global collaboration and incentives for global collaboration on solving new challenges. We're starting to see this with COVID-19 vaccines um, and other treatments um, that as the world sort of comes together to, um, to research and try and come up with new, sol new, new, new solutions to some of these, these challenges, we want folks to be working together on these solutions and not just working in silos. So I think at that point, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna let John take the next piece and then we can sort of talk about some of the speakers. that that overview was uh, very comprehensive um, and gives a uh, good background into some of the work that we've been doing at Gaia and the challenges that we're facing currently or that uh, COVID-19 has um, illuminated uh, challenges that have existed for a long time in the access to medicine space. Um, I think one of the things that uh, has been getting some attention as you know the pricing of um, a vaccine should one become available. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the other challenges that exist though with respect to vaccines. I think that you know price is perhaps a, a visible um, component of this and everybody is curious you know how, how such a thing would be how do you 
create a price that is equitable and fair. Um, and I hope that in the discussion we can get into uh, a little bit more detail about um, different strategies that are uh, provide greater, you know, net social utility than um, you know a flat price, for example, would. Uh, but you know, there are other challenges ahead of us as well, and it wouldn't matter what the price was or if the drug were freely available. Um, you know, we have challenges in many parts of the world where there's not access to hospitals or healthcare professionals. Uh, education is an enormous barrier. Uh, I think, you know, we had, there is some discussion in this country about um, vaccines and whether people even believe that they are something um, that we should be using therapeutically. Um, a Harris poll found that last year, 45% of Americans don't believe that vaccines are safe. And um, in many parts of the world, you might have uh, deep-seated religious objections to the use of vaccines, the use of human tissue cells to create vaccines. Um, some parts of the world believe vaccines are a Western, you know, plot to sterilize or infect societies. Uh, I think you still have fallout from uh, reports such as Edward Hooper's The River um, claiming that HIV AIDS was, you know, started uh, in Africa as a result of transitioning from monkeys to humans via the polio vaccine. Um, you know, these are challenges that we still confront in uh, daily practice with existing medicines and, um, you know, create, the creation of new medicines is certainly, uh, you know, a place where there's a lot of tension and a lot of skepticism. And I don't think we've made progress in the, in the area of uh, dampening um, susceptibility to fake news. So it's, um, it, it, that, that challenge continues to, to grow, I think, uh, every year. Um, perhaps the most, uh, you know, the biggest determinant, frankly, of access to medicines is uh, perhaps the most obvious, and that is um, financing. So if uh, numerous studies you know, demonstrate that if financing is available, medicines are available where medicines are, you know, perhaps not as, as obvious, you know, where medicines can be priced uh, higher in some parts of the market, those medicines are more likely to be available. Um, and so I think it's worth noting that, uh, you know, the pricing of medicines and access to medicines are, are, is, a, is a complex issue, one that, that usually doesn't involve the patient as the end consumer, but rather the government has some kind of program or some insurance mechanism that um, isolates the rational consumer model from uh, working in the healthcare context. And you then are left to look at kind of what the governments are doing or what the public uh, sector is doing. And if we look at those numbers across the world, um, the U.S., as, as you would expect, is a leader. So we spend 2% of GDP on pharmaceuticals, which is uh, near the top of um, OECD uh, statistics. Um, Japan spends about the same, also 2%. Canada spends about the same, 1.8%, 1.9%. Uh, Korea, Switzerland, Germany, uh, Spain, around 1.6, 1.7%. Um, but there are a few Western outliers. You can look at uh, countries like the UK, only spends 1.1%. Denmark and Luxembourg, 0.6%. Um, 
And so I think it's I think it's worth asking, you know, whether there is uh, some, as as Quentin referred to, a social contract where Western governments that have are are more not necessarily Western governments governments that have more resources should be should be uh, paying more than uh, those with less resources. Um, I mean, an example would be that in Ethiopia, if they were paying if Ethiopians. The Ethiopian government paid half as much as Americans pay for drugs. Um, that would be 60% of GDP. So, I mean, obviously that, that makes no sense at all. And there should be a, a difference in how we price medicines in the US uh, for um, the system that spends money on pharmaceuticals here and how we price medicines for Ethiopia and the system that uh, spends money on medicines. Um, and I think one more point I just want to make before we open it up to questions, because I'm sure there are a few of them, is the is one that Quentin made uh, kind of in the middle of the presentation. And that is, you know, we've been thinking a lot about how to explain, um, you know, what uh, this, this process of pricing medicines differently. Um, and in the U.S., I think most people don't perhaps realize that you would have dozens of prices for the exact same medicine, um, just within our market. Uh, and you have um, a lot of discount programs that are available to some population segments or to large purchasers that aren't available to all um, patients or patient groups or insurance groups. Uh, and that that system uh, ends up delivering greater access um, more widely than a system that would price at, uh, the same for everybody. Um, another way to think about it, as, as Quentin noted in the middle of the presentation, would be um, income taxation. So we tax people uh, in the United States differently based on, is based on their income. I mean, is it unfair that some people pay 4% income tax and others pay effectively 27%? Um, I don't think that we would think that it's unfair. Uh, it raises a lot more revenue. Um, it allows us to do all kinds of things. Um, it, but... You know, there are some that have argued that it is unfair. I mean, I think it was a popular kind of Republican uh, talking point for a while. And Newt Gingrich and others were uh, Pat Buchanan arguing that we should have a flat tax in the U.S. Um, so it's not it's not something that's completely off the rails. But um, I think in, in terms of thinking about medicines and how in some cases it's actually more equitable for uh, there to be price differentiation. Um, it's useful to think about uh, some of the practices that we've learned from taxation. Sure. Uh, thanks a lot for the comments, John. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to play a little bit the role of the devil advocates here. Uh, and the arguments that are a lot being launched uh, in the public domain is the same ones that we have uh, seen before when we talk about uh, price mechanism for the greater good. Uh, so the COVID vaccine is to is estimated to cost something like $2 billion. Uh, as of now, CEPI uh, has managed to raise, I think, just about under $800 million. Uh, so the conversation is very much, how do we get the funding? Uh, how do we make sure that the investment that the industry is making or governments are making does have some sort of return on investment. Uh, so on one side, that's one school of thought. On the other side, 
we can only be as healthy as our neighbors. So for the first time probably uh, in history, uh, at least since the 1918 pandemic, we can't really say if another country really, really far from us does not have access to the vaccine, uh, it's totally fine because we have it. Because the way the connection works today is it will eventually get to any corner, nook and corner of, of the globe. So how do we, from both your experience, uh, John, you from your experience from working with the industry and having been on so many of those conversations of the balancing act, between the industry and society. And you, Quentin, from especially of the conversations that you've often brought up in terms of IP pool, like how, what are the possible solutions that would be a win-win situation for both stakeholders? You wanna take that first? Sure. Um, I, you know, this is, you know, one of the, the great, this is kind of a very interesting, case study um, as you have uh, enormous demand, a race uh, to develop a vaccine with dozens and dozens of participants. Um, you will have a variety of vaccines potentially that come out of this, um, which creates some form of price competition. You'll have a variety of treatments, you'll have a variety of diagnostic tools. So I think it's important to, to note that there's not, there's not going to be one, you know, end all be all solution and everything else uh, will kind of fall away. Um, there will, there is already a ton of competition, um, which creates a lot of uh, market dynamics that we're all familiar with. Um, the question of how, and I think Ash, you rightly pointed out that this, uh, like many other infectious diseases, it's one that affects all of us. So um, everyone has a vested interest in making sure that all patients in need everywhere in the world, regardless of their ability to pay or their government's ability to pay, receives access to, to care. Um, you know, I think that there are a lot of opportunities to put into practice some of the things that some of the lessons that we've learned over the last 20 years. One would be to create an environment where, um, you know, the companies that are providing treatments um, are providing them to uh, least developing countries or so-called recipient countries in this case um, uh, on a, a lower cost or a free, you know, basis free would mean, I guess, licensing. We could license technology through something like the medicines patent pool, which has been used effectively in the past in HIV and other cases, um, to spin up manufacture and distribution in, uh, least developing countries or other parts of the world. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of, um, prices that could be set in advance based on volumes. Um, there are some potential use here for advanced market commitments. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's a lack of investment on the R&D side, but in terms of the distribution and manufacturing, there is certainly going to be a need uh, to, to spin up a lot of market participants there. Um, you know, so I think that there, I think that this is really just an interesting, um, opportunity to uh, deploy some of the lessons that we've seen be effective, uh, you know, in other, in other cases of infectious diseases like, like HIV, uh, and uh, perhaps also to look at some of the cases that didn't work. Um, I think there are other examples where you had a lot of the elements in place, um, but because there wasn't financing available, you didn't really see the same uptake 
uh, and distribution, and um, you know that can be instructive as well. Yeah, I think uh, I, th I think that you're right, Ash. That there that there is a self-interest in on the part of uh, a number of the wealthier countries to make sure that the pandemic is contained as quickly as possible all over the world because of the interconnectedness of the world. I think theoretically you're trying to do sort of two things at once. Um, one is you want to have incentives um, for the research and development to happen at an extraordinarily compressed time scale. Um, so normally with drug research and development, you have a, a time period um, for both the development and then the safety and efficacy testing um, that spans often decades. Um, here we have to do everything in a period of a year or 18 months. Um, and so you need to kind of incentivize um, that kind of collaboration, that extraordinary rapidity of uh, the research um, and the testing, uh, and not only for the vaccine, but also for a series of, of, of tests um, and, uh, and therapeutics. Um, and so you need resources to, to do that. Um, and some of the traditional mechanisms um, don't work very well because on the back end, uh, there's gonna be an extraordinarily large market, um, but there's also going to be a lot of need. Um, on the other hand, you also want to make sure that once we reach the finish line on all of those categories of, uh, of therapeutics and, and diagnostics and, and vaccines, um, that we can actually effectively deploy them and not price people out of the market. Um, and um, so what I, I would suggest is one of the goals that uh, the charitable organizations, the intergovernmental organizations, the governmental organizations should have as money pumps into the system um, is to have some strings attached um, to that financing that will help um, smooth out some of these problems on the back end. So John mentioned um, advanced market commitments um, and advanced market commitments are a mechanism that has had a lot of um, academic support um, and where there have been a couple of practical examples of trying to design um, them, particularly in the pneumococcal space, um, but much more sort of theoretical interest than, than practical application. An advanced market commitment, in my view, could work in this, uh, in this situation. Um, less though, I mean, typically the reason why you do an advanced market commitment is because there are insufficient resources being devoted to R&D. Um, here, I don't think that's the case. I think that there's going to be an enormous, uh, uh, enormous amount of energy um, and resources focused on that. Maybe we need to, uh, to increase those incentives, um, but there's a lot of reasons um, for folks to, to get involved in this. Um, what there isn't as much um, is sort of price certainty on the back end um, and um, some ability to make sure um, that beyond uh, the initial push, um, that there is price fairness. Um, and so I think one of the things that the world community could do, um, or one large government could do, uh, is try to tie um, some of the resources that are being provided in the advanced market commitment to uh, an obligation um, to increase access uh, on the back end for everyone. Um, and I think that kind of a quid pro quo uh, would work pretty well under these circumstances. Very hard to design it, um, and it probably requires more resources to be effective 
than are currently on the table. Um, but I think if you could create some kind of advanced market commitment where you sort of um, promise a certain amount of uh, purchases at a certain price for a certain period of time um, in exchange for a commitment beyond that period of time um, to charge a fair price, uh, at least in the poorest countries, I think that could work out very well. Yeah, absolutely. So I think now it's time, as I see the questions popping in more and more, maybe to bring uh, the first question to you. Uh, so I'm going to go to uh, uh, a friend of Gaia, uh, but also someone who is uh, from CEPI, uh, who has asked one specific questions. Uh, and Richard, so it's, it's, the question is from Richard Wilder. Can you discuss the role of patent pools in the field of vaccines, uh, more specifically? And um, I see a similar kind of question uh, from the Q&A as well. So maybe a little bit more on the technical point, uh, probably from the legal aspect of it. Uh, how feasible uh, is it now to have to pull resources and to have one IP and to have access to this IP uh, from the rest of the world. John, you mentioned the medicine patent pool. Do you want to, do you want to start here and I'll try now? Okay, yeah, I should, I'll, I'll be brief since you're the attorney, I'll let you take <laughs> the legal part. Um, I mean, I, though I think there is kind of an interesting ex ante, ex post question here where most of the medicines that we put in things like patent pools have been developed and they're um, on the market and commercialized and available in some parts of the world. And this is a, a mechanism to distribute them more broadly. Is there an ex ante opportunity here as we're uh, looking to forecast what those uh, treatments, diagnostics or vaccines might look like? And um, are, there, are, are there some programs that uh, would be effective um, in uh, helping to scale up for distribution to the developing world. Um, you know, the one I alluded to would be something along the lines of getting commitments from companies to um, license their uh, technologies that were approved for use for COVID into something like a patent pool, um, which could then be tied to a fund. Uh, and then you would uh, have some kind of um, tender offer program managed uh, by the fund to um, uh, encourage manufacturing distribution in parts of the world that would, would not be able to create the demand for that technology um, on their own, right? So if we're talking about least developing countries where you have GDPs of less than $1,000 a year um, and, you know, what what kinds of funds could be created to assist those countries in delivering um, in, in manufacturing the vaccine for distribution and then in actually distributing the vaccine in those parts of the world. Um, and, you know, probably the easiest piece of that to figure out in, in that case is, you know, how do we get uh, the rights to that technology? Um, basically based on some of the, you know, groundbreaking work that Dick and Quentin and others have done over the last two decades to develop some of these kinds of programs. So um, I'll let you. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just want to give a shout out. So one of the, one of the, sort of most significant developments in the field of epidemic preparedness coming out of the Ebola crisis 
was the development of a new organization, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, um, that has played a really significant role in the uh, in the COVID response. Um, and uh, one of the things that we learned from the Ebola experience was that we need more resources um, focusing on epidemic preparedness and focusing particularly on um, the research and development side of that. And so SEPI um, has is sort of having a moment um, of uh, particularly profound uh, importance. Um, and this is exactly kind of what it was created to do. So when we were talking about patent pools, I think that you kind of have to um, disentangle kind of two pieces. One is that anything um, that relates to the patent system, one of the things that you're trying to figure out is how do you make sure um, that folks uh, and you know, inventors or companies um, that have invested time and money in the development of uh, of a commercial product um, are able to recoup their investment over time. In the field of medicines, um, this creates a particular challenge, right? What you do uh, in order to uh, allow patent holders to uh, recover their investment is you allow them to restrict output and raise price. Um, in other contexts, um, that's something um, that we as a society um, have, have decided is mostly a good incentive, but in the in the world of medicines, um, it does mean that you are practically speaking um, pricing some folks out of the market, and so you need then as a downstream measure uh, to try and figure out how you manage those access and equity issues. Um, and so, in a lot of cases, patent holders uh, with life-saving medicines develop various kinds of programs, um, either to contribute their medicines to some poor countries or to uh, license them to generic manufacturers or um, to, to market um, to parallel markets um, within the same uh, jurisdictions to increase the access to that. So you've always, when you've got patents with life-saving medicines, you've always got this push and pull um, between wanting to um, reward the inventor and, um, uh, and incentivize the next wave of innovation and at the same time uh, making sure uh, that people have access to that and they don't get priced out of the market for things um, where getting access to it or not um, can, be, um, can be a matter of life or death. Um, in the context of a patent pool, you've got another layer of complication, which is that um, in a lot of these medical innovations, it is not just one patent um, that governs the um, the the stream of research that leads to, um, to the therapeutics or, or to the vaccine. In many cases, you've got a, a number of different entities that have patent rights. Um, and um, the patent pools have come into being in part um, to make it easier for governments and charities and intergovernment organizations um, to negotiate uh, with a larger group of, uh, of patent holders uh, without as much friction, without as many, uh, without as many um, transaction costs, um, and to uh, to come to arrangements that will allow for um, will will allow for the distribution of medicines who need them on fair terms. Um, and I think that you're seeing some of that. Um, you know, we've certainly seen this in the context of HIV/AIDS, and we've seen it in the context of, of tuberculosis and malaria. And I think that we're going to see some need for that within the context of this. There's a lot of, there's a race 
um, to develop uh, some of these medicines. Um, and I think that the most likely outcome is that in order to, uh, to provide uh, needed medicines to, to a lot of different countries, you're going to have a hodgepodge of different patent rights. So having some mechanism uh, that allows both for fairness and takes out some of that friction uh, and some of those transaction costs, I think, could be, could be very Thank you, uh, Quentin. So let's go now to the U.S. context with uh, a question from Evan. Uh, he says, as far as I understand, many drug companies spend more money on marketing than on R&D, and most research funding in the U.S. comes from the NIH and the NSF. Why focus on getting people to accept progressive drug pricing across countries rather than reducing the prices across the board by reducing the patentability of drugs based on public funding? So maybe Quentin? So there are, there are a number of different inputs um, that uh, you know, lead to um, some of the innovations that are uh, most impactful. And I think that there is good research to suggest that, um, that there is very high efficacy um, to the public investments um, that NIH and NSF have made. Um, and it's very clear um, that there are very significant access challenges um, and um, some, you know, we've seen some very bad practices um, that, uh, you know, that, that have garnered a lot of headlines um, in the um, in the United States around patent gouging. Um, and so, you know, those are definitely issues that we need, that need to take on. Uh, I think a lot of those can be taken on at the national and the subnational level. So we've had a lot of conversations in state legislatures. We've had some conversations at the national level, although our Congress is broken. Um, but in the, um, in the international arena, um, I think that uh, you're also talking about you know, huge, massive public investments of, of resources, this, uh, this effort that's coming together um, under the leadership of the WHO and a group of, uh, of, of charities um, and IGOs and countries um, around uh, the COVID, uh, it, it involves a massive infusion of public and charitable money. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of the resources are gonna come from initially um, I think on the back end, you do want um, those charitable entities um, and those governments to be able to recoup some of their investments um, in some of that research. And so you want to come up with the mechanisms for uh, so some of that revenue flow uh, to come back to the original um, IGOs and investors um, as they as John, do you want to take any piece of I think that this is, uh, you know, a challenge. Um, how, you know, what is the right? Uh, there's a necessary tension here. If we're trying to create incentives for uh, market uh, activity, and um, you know, the a patent is a market disrupting device. Um, it is a public policy tool used to try to incentivize innovation in specific areas, we might do things like add years on for data exclusivity or add other kind of regulatory benefits if we want to drive investment in certain categories. Um, 
most of the medicines, you know, that are the new medicines that are produced globally come out of the U.S. system. Um, so uh, the, the system is one that uh, works, does attract capital, um, a lot of risk capital. Uh, I mean, you could argue perhaps it's not, you know, we're not driving enough incentives to the sector. You have a lot of investment in developing finely tuned targeted ads for the internet. Um, and you know, people seem to make a lot of money doing that too. So I think that there are a lot of ways uh, to come at this problem. Um, public financing would certainly work if it were at the levels required. Uh, I don't think it is. I mean, as we were you know, discussing the US in the current environment, even with market pricing in some cases, spends 2% of GDP on, on pharmaceuticals. We spend a lot more, a lot more on other categories, um, you know, defense spending or uh, even, even healthcare more broadly, um, which is 19% uh, of GDP. So within the healthcare context, um, you know, pharma spending is about 10%. Uh, so I think that there are a lot of ways um, to look at it, but uh, the most important um, is are we creating the proper incentives to generate the kind of innovation that we want? Do we want innovation to come faster? If so, what are some of the mechanisms that would uh, create an environment that pushed more money and more smart people into working on those problems um, when they can choose to work on anything? And uh, I think that's, that's something we should be constantly uh, debating and discussing. And um, you know, so I think, it's a, I think it's a great question. Hard answer. I think, I, I, think it, I think it's a terrific question. I'm very open to more patent reform. So when I was in the White House, um, we, uh, you know, we were engaged in a large patent reform conversation. It led to the passage of the American Vents Act. Uh, which is by no means perfect um, and um, uh, helped us to rationalize some of the differences between the U.S. patent system and uh, the international system, allowed us to, to take on some of the backlog issues. Um, but when we were done with that process, um, we very much thought that there was a series of additional reforms that we would like to see happen. Um, and as I was leaving the White House, we, um, we announced a sort of second wave of reforms that we were interested in pursuing. Some of that um, was discussed um, in the second term of the Obama administration um, and um, didn't sort of make progress in a Congress that is not deeply functional at this point. And so one of the things I would say um, is just it's very, very hard to move federal legislation. One of the things that I would do, I think, if I were looking at another wave of patent reform is to, to try to deal with some of the challenges that come up uh, with what's called the unitary patent. So one of the things that becomes difficult is that um, patent innovation or patent incentives um, uh, are very uh, one-size-fits-all. They're very blunt methods. And in a lot of ways, um, the kinds of innovation that you're trying to incentivize um, is very different from one invention to the other. So if you think about a cell phone, there are, say, three or 4,000 patents um, just in you know, my iPhone. Um, 
And uh, if you think about one of the sort of uh, one of the drugs that you're developing, maybe for COVID-19, that's probably a single uh, main uh, operative active element. Um, and treating those two problems the same way creates a lot of the structural friction uh, within the system. Um, one of the things that we uh, experimented with or thought about a little bit um, was trying to give more rulemaking authority um, to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has um, procedural rulemaking authority, but they don't have substantive rulemaking authority. So uh, one way to deal with that would be to try to figure out how to create sort of different categories of patents and play with the various amounts of incentives um, to deadweight loss that you create within the system. Um, but another way to do it would be to push down to the agency level um, some power um, to tweak uh, individual um, pieces of the incentive structure, maybe in little ways, um, that would allow us to sort of smooth some of the differences between the kinds of uh, incentives that you're trying to create and the kinds of dead weight loss that's being created as a result of that marketing. It's very, very hard to um, and is not something that sort of had broad. So a lot of uh, questions uh, regarding patent at the moment. Uh, and I would like to come back to that because they are a really interesting one. But before that, let's zoom out and talk a little bit more from the developing countries perspective. So we have a very interesting question from uh, Paula Bayer. Uh, who's saying uh, the small economies of the Caribbean are very concerned about access now, even beside pricing. We saw early on in March that there were insufficient PPEs available for us to purchase. How do we ensure that there is sufficient production of vaccines, uh, treatment and diagnostics, et cetera, for all persons and nations, uh, and that this will be made available uh, at a price that you know, what is, what is it going to look like? Will it be only a commercial process or is there gonna be uh, something else that they can look forward to? I think, I mean, that's a fantastic question. Um, and it's important in a few uh, respects. One, um, this is not just about the vaccine or whatever treatment ultimately people will determine is most effective for the widest use of people to uh, take. Um, it's about everything from uh, the personal protective equipment to the diagnostics to uh, treatments along the way for people that contract the virus to, uh, to the vaccine. And, um, in all cases, uh, we have the same problem, which is um, a you know an enormous delta between uh, countries that have resources and, and those that don't. And um, so, I think that there needs to be more work done uh, in this uh, specific uh, challenge, this pandemic that we're all facing. That um, you know we're all connected. Uh, presents an opportunity for us to try to uh, calibrate some of the redistrib redistribution that has to happen between um, richer nations and poorer nations. Um, and I think the important takeaway is really kind of what Quentin highlighted in his 
presentation, and that is there needs to be a restoration of the social contract. I mean, this is very basic stuff, you know, Kantian or the golden rule or, you know, however you want to think about it, it is, you know, those who can should, and um, it's not much more complicated than that. So I want to build on something that John said earlier, which is that, you know, pricing barriers are the access problem. Um, sorry, am I muted? I see your mode. I know we can hear you. Um, you know, so, so we, we talk a lot about the pricing mechanisms because I think they're very important and it does feel like there's a real moral burden not to let price be the thing that prevents somebody from accessing a known technology. Um, but there are a lot of other challenges as well. And your question about Caribbean countries brings this to mind. In a lot of instances, it's about getting the thing to the place. Um, and there are a lot of medicines that are not available in a lot of countries at any price. Um, there's, uh, you talked about um, PPEs. Um, there are also just shortages of trained healthcare workers. So I um, spent a little bit of time in Mozambique. Um, and the coastline of Mozambique is like the coastline from Miami, uh, from Miami to Maine, uh, where um, in Miami is the sort of main city, Maputo. Um, you can drive essentially the same coastline as the east coast of the United States, um, completely on dirt roads. Um, and I got there and I said, you know, what are some of the challenges in terms of access to meds? And I thought everybody was going to be all upset about pricing. And they said, well, you know, we've got the, these uh, medicines and they're in a box and the box is too big to fit in the truck. I can't get the trucks up the coastline. Um, and so there are a lot of really straightforward kind of blocking and tackling kinds of problems. But also if you sort of think about trained healthcare workers. So um, the ratio of trained healthcare workers in some of those northern hill towns in Mozambique to, uh, to, to the population is about 200,000. Um, so, uh, you know, having anybody with medical training um, be in a position to diagnose and get um, good treatment to you is a real challenge. And so as we think about some of these pricing mechanisms and we talk about sort of how we're going to um, have uh, equitable access in a price space, we also need to be thinking about health system capacity. We need to be thinking about getting the uh, manufacturing capacity, we need trained healthcare workers, we need to actually get the stuff to the people. Um, and those are real challenges. No, absolutely. I think uh, one of the, uh, from, from the developing countries perspective, there's more than one issue. And a lot of those issues were already uh, in the health system before the COVID-19. So uh, faced with the international pricing hoarding and hoarding at the moment, it's, uh, it's adding on to the complications of those countries. And that brings me to another question on uh, patent for going back to uh, competition. So we have a question from Sana, uh, who's asking, patent pools often lead to anti-competitive behavior. Pharmaceuticals involved in developing a vaccine may uh, collude, hence defeating the very purpose of making the vaccine accessible. How do you propose one deal with this drawback? So it's a really interesting question, the relationship between the patent law and the anti-competition or antitrust law. So if you think about what you're, in general, in antitrust law, we don't let trade associations um, facilitate cooperation or collusion uh, across otherwise competitive entities. 
um, in some cases we do have governments step in um, or intergovernmental organizations step in to try to facilitate cooperation, um, but sometimes cooperation becomes collusion and price comes up. So you have to be very careful when you supplant the ordinary rules um, that, uh, that encourage people to work in, um, in true competition at truly arm's length, um, that if you're breaking those walls down to encourage cooperation, um, that you actually uh, <laughs> cause the price to go, to go down as opposed to going up. And I think that that requires um, you know, rigorous structuring of the patent rules and good oversight. Um, I do think that there are some circumstances though uh, where it is important for folks to work together. I remember with when the um, Ebola crisis hit um, and there were a number of different sort of research streams of uh, different um, uh, you know, different solutions to, to the problem and people sort of got together in one room and started to share uh, their research and it did accelerate uh, a lot of the um, uh, you know, a, a lot of the resolution of some of these problems. So I think that the uh, the lesson there is don't. Uh, it, it, the lesson is not don't cooperate. The lesson is um, have oversight um, during those periods of cooperation to make sure that you're accomplishing your public policy. John, do you have any take on on the question? No, I think he handled it. Yeah, I think there were a lot of uh, comments uh, that ties well to the to your reply, Quentin. We have, for example, Zane, who's who's commenting on Johnson and Johnson estimates that it can produce a billion doses annually if the vaccine is effective, and that that's a fraction of the global population, meaning billions will go without timely access. Uh, and and her question is: Do you support that requiring companies to share know-how and manufacturing technologies? I, I think you you covered that pretty much. Do you have anything specific to J and J? Yeah, I mean, my, my my instinct is to say that the entities that are coming forward to help with financing, so that may be the World Bank, that may be the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or SEPI, or Gavi, or or, or some of the European countries, um, should think very seriously about what strings they attach to the contributions at a moment where they do have some leverage. And we should be very careful that the requirements um, that are tied to that funding actually get to some of the challenges that we're likely to see downstream. So one of them is we want to gear up manufacturing capability to the level that's going to be required, not necessarily profit maximizing level, but like solving the problem level. Um, but we also want to make sure that when we have that capacity, um, there is actually an effective mechanism for distributing those, uh, those medicines and the, and, and the tasks um, and the vaccines um, at prices that can be afforded by the countries that are buying it. Um, as John says, in many cases, the end user is probably not the purchaser. So we're thinking about the, those purchasers. But I, but I do think that this is a moment where lawyers could play a really important role in helping donors condition their mm -hmm. investments on very specific follow-through 
mechanisms um, to make sure that um, the contracts require things that are actually in health. And, and it just takes good lawyering to do that well. I can provide two examples of, um, you know, how, how that plays out in reality. So one, and they're both from the same experience, which is essentially the work that uh, Gilead did uh, pioneering these licensing agreements with generic drug firms to scale up production of HIV. Um, in this case, you had funding. So you had funding coming from uh, PEPFAR and the Global Fund. But one of the really interesting things that happened as a result of the licensing agreements um, was uh, the reduction in price and the innovation that occurred in the manufacturing supply chain. So when Gilead was producing HIV medicines um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago before really uh, ramping up the licensing program, it thought, we'll just use, you know, it thought it could produce at 100. And that was the cheapest price that the Gilead manufacturing uh, could produce. Um, once the uh, patent uh, licensing agreements were created and there was competition created within the supply chain from generic companies around the world, and you had uh, a structure which essentially did not say, okay, we want to, J&J, we want you to do a billion and company X, we want you to do a billion and company Y, we want you to do 200 million. And then here's a contract for that, there were bids put out. And with these very large bids, um, uh, generic companies had to stretch uh, and there was fierce competition because these were incredibly large contracts. Um, that competition led to innovation in the manufacturing of these products, which drove down the cost of those products significantly. Um, the price of 100 uh, 15 years ago is now less than 10 or less than 15. So you had a greater than 85% reduction in the cost of the same product. Um, I, I think that's extraordinary. I mean, when you start to think about how you need to scale up uh, treatment, it's not about raising a bunch of money and giving it to one company. It's also thinking through how do we create market dynamics, which are in some cases very powerful um, and will lead to more innovation beyond the thing. The thing is just the first innovation. And then we need to think about how do we uh, produce the active pharmaceutical ingredient cheaper and how do we you know, produce the, how do we scale up the manufacturing so that it can deliver millions of more units per month and there are, there are lots of things that continue to happen after the thing exists. Um, so not to forget about those things and to create structures that will continue to incentivate innovation uh, as it will take years for us to reach everybody around the world once there is something available. All right, thank you, uh, both of you. We are slightly over the hour. So thank you very much to everyone for your great questions. Uh, I think they were all very interesting if we had enough time to go over each one of them, but unfortunately we could only accommodate a few. Uh, so Quentin and John, what is the one thing as concluding remark that would be critical for the world to look at to make sure that we increase access 
to the COVID vaccine of the whole world population, including those who are the vulnerable groups? Yeah, I just think that this is a time um, for us to come together. I don't think this is sort of an every country for yourself kind of uh, uh, an experience. And I think that we need to push back against this sort of populist nationalism. And I think that's true not only here in the United States, but unfortunately, it's something that's sort of creeping into this space. Um, and I think that we need to um, reinforce the notion that it's in both our sort of moral um, obligation and in our sort of collective self and interest for us to be uh, thinking particularly about pandemics um, as a global problem with global resolution. I would just say, um, kind of echoing Quentin's uh, closing point that, you know, now is the time for, <clears throat> now is the time for leadership. Uh, those who can lead need to step up and do so. And um, those with resources and the ability uh, need to, you know, participate in uh, a leadership capacity. Um, there, there are needs around the world, uh, and this is um, certainly one of those moments where, uh, you know, as Quentin was saying, we're all in this together. So, um, uh, hopefully, we can get back to that social contract idea, uh, and. Um, the U.S., you know, and and many other governments around the world will have to play a leading role. Thank you very much for this great conversation. It was a pleasure having you both on the panel. Uh, thank you to all the participants for your great questions. I have my email in the chat box. So if you want to send me further comments, uh, feel free to do that. And uh, we hope to see you again on BKC platform or future Gaia. Uh, webinars. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you.